Teo, hold that still, please. Mum snapped as she walked out of the front door of the house towards the car, where I was sat waiting patiently on the back seat. I always knew she meant business when the claw came out. A tortoiseshell contraption that looked like the mouth of a Venus flytrap. The claw's primary use was to hold Mum's hair away from her face, but its appearance was a surefire indicator that an explosion was imminent. In mellower times, she wore her hair long, but the claw had been flashing away all morning, in and out of Mum's mane as she repeatedly fixed and rearranged it. I shifted nervously in my seat, adjusting the glossy beige stoneware bowl that sat in my lap, full to the brim with raspberries, M&S custard, and over-whipped cream. I was wearing my favourite pair of blue and white striped dungarees, finished with shiny bright fasteners on the bib, which Mum said made me look like Andy Pandy and I had jammed my fingers between my legs and the slippery bowl to stop it from spilling. Raspberry trifle had become Mum's signature dish that year, and, as a consequence, it had quickly become my favourite too. So it was in my best interest to do exactly as she asked. And stop fussing, Romy, or you're going to make us later than we already are. My sister, whose mop of off-auburn hair had been cut at the fringe in the shape of the bowl perched on my thighs, was wearing a black frock that finished at the knee and was covered in a purple and green floral pattern. It was my favourite of Romy's many party dresses. I'm pretty sure it was Mum's too, because she made her wear it a lot. Romy was sitting next to me in the back of Mum's midnight blue Volkswagen Jetta. Her feet were shod in a pair of patent Mary Janes and frilly white socks to match the detailing on the dress, with the frills positioned so they jutted out over the edge of the shoes just so. Romy was using one of her jammed-up fists to rub her left eye. The other was holding on fiercely to her new doll. Teo said he was going to cut her hair, Romy whined, glancing anxiously at tiny tears, which, a touch eerily, could cry on demand. It was true. I had said that. No, I didn't, Romy. Be quiet. I gave her a sly pinch, a trick I'd learned from Mum, who had much sharper nails than me. Both of Romy's little fists met her eyes. Tiny tears was left dangerously exposed. Dio! Dad's ultra-Dutch pronunciation of my name made it sound like the opening refrain from the Harry Belafonte song. Only in this case, much less friendly. What did you bloody well do to your sister now? Dad had appeared at the front door of the house, filling the frame. Hands on his hips, his already quite cavernous brow was furrowed extra deep. He'd returned from a trip to Zimbabwe the night before, bringing with him the good, six beautifully painted wooden animal toys to match the six years I'd spent on Earth, and the bad, the considerably less than eight hours sleep that always accompanied his jet lag, an occupational hazard in the world of a commercial pilot. Couple the latter with our fast approaching mass family gathering, and we all had a strong sense of impending danger. It's all right, Jan, we just need to go, Mum muttered, used to his post-flight flare-ups. She was busy strapping a sizable mushroom tart into the foot cavity of the passenger seat, on top of three chilled bottles of Wolf Blast Creek. Smoothing down the front of her rust-brown dress, which was finished with oversized white polka dots, she manoeuvred herself backwards out of the car. Choosing to ignore her, Dad stormed out from the shadow of the big wooden door, which was finished with incongruously large wrought iron rivets that made it look like something that belonged at Hampton Court Palace, and pulled up to my side of the car, eyeing me like a pissed-off Tyrannosaurus Rex. He was wearing a pair of paint-splattered navy blue tracksuit bottoms with a capacious fruit-of-the-loom t-shirt fraying at the collar, 
and a pair of white tube socks on his feet with no shoes. You two behave for your mother, you hear me? The Dutchness in his accent was all the more pronounced when he hadn't had enough sleep. I know I was meant to be scared. However, I couldn't help but think of how much trouble I would get in if I wore my socks outside without any shoes on like he was. I'll see you there later, Jane, he said, turning back towards the house, his anger and words muffled somewhat by the wall created by his enormous shoulders. Dad always preferred to drive his own car to Grandma's, which, in his current state, was a blessing. Mum got me into the front seat of the Jetta and turned back to Romy and me, giving me a knowing look and my sister a squeeze on the ankle as she reversed out of the drive. I should probably have been more upset that Dad wasn't coming with us. I hadn't seen him for a week and it was my sixth birthday, but secretly I was a little bit relieved. I had a mission to complete that day, and I didn't want anything, or anyone, getting in the way. One of the best things about visiting my grandparents' house was that we got to rummage through the giant dressing-up box, filled bountifully by my mother's flamboyant family over the years. Fit to bursting with my grandpa's old naval uniforms, OBs and saris from their various travels around the world, and odds and ends which my mum and her five sisters had worn growing up, it was a veritable treasure trove of sartorial opportunity. But the star of the dressing-up box was, without question, a cornflower blue princess dress. Crafted from voluminous layers of taffeta and tulle, the gown featured a satin skirt puffed out over multiple petticoats, finished on top with two large swathes of voile and chiffon, which were crossed over one another to create a kind of loose bustier. The surface of the dress was densely embroidered with lilac and cornflower beads, the kind that made your teeth squeak when you rubbed them against them, which I had done on many occasions, and I loved it. Whenever I had the opportunity, I would sneak up the stairs of my grandparents' house to look at it, stroking the fabric against my skin, fondling the shards of shaped plastic and glass, but I'd never been brave enough to actually wear it. In the weeks leading up to my birthday, which landed in the middle of June, I'd been quietly hatching a plan to ensure that I got to wear the dress at the party. I took a great deal of pride in the fact that, if I'd been able to drive, I would have very easily been able to figure out the way to my grandparents' house at 91 Ember Lane without the use of a map. We did the journey there and back most Sundays, and I had measured the route out in a series of ten perfectly spaced foot taps, which only I knew. The rhythm went something like this. One tap for when we drove past Contact, the best sweet shop in Fetcham, despite the fact that it smelled of old nicotine. One tap when we went past the petrol station that wouldn't let you fill up the car yourself. A tap for when we passed Fetcham Tandoori, and a series of three taps for when we drove past the various entrances to the woods that connected Fetcham with Stoke Dabenham. There was one tap for Cobham and Stoke Dabenham Station, one for when we went past Mum's friend Jill's house, and another for when we eventually got to Sandown Racecourse in Isha, a leafy suburb on the outskirts of Greater London. The final tap came at Café Rouge, which marked the turning onto my grandparents' road. When we eventually made it to the house that day, ten tap quota filled, the soft orange of the digital clock on Mum's dashboard read 14.32, though I knew that it was an hour fast because Mum didn't know how to change the time after daylight savings. So it in fact meant that we were two minutes late. Grandma's Sunday lunch buffet started at 13.30 sharp, and if you didn't get there on time, it meant that you, A, wouldn't find a space on the driveway, and B, would miss all the food. I told you two we wouldn't get a space, 
Mum muttered under her breath as she turned down Robson and Jerome, who were crooning their version of Unchained Melody on the radio. We pulled into the road opposite the house, parked next to the pavement, and Mum brought the car to a standstill. Romy was fully engrossed with her doll as Mum and I pumped the handles to do up our windows. Mum took her lipstick out of her bag, never red, always plum, and gently pulled the claw from her hair, transforming her from Roadrunner into Lois Lane with the sweep of a manicured hand. Ready, kinders? She smiled at us in the rearview mirror, all earlier stresses evaporating out through the sunroof, like the condensation lifting from the wine warming in the front. We loaded ourselves up with the many party accoutrement we had packed into the car before crossing the road to the house. Romy took Mum's hand in one of hers, tiny tears in the other. I held onto the trifle for dear life, trotting carefully behind their dresses as they swished in succession. Yoo-hoo! came a familiar cry from the open bay window, which looked out over the driveway from my grandparents' smarter living room. The party people have arrived! It was always possible to tell how much wine Auntie Rosie, the youngest of my mum's five sisters, had drunk by how high her ponytail was sitting on her head. The Karl Lagerfeld equaled little to no wine. The Andre Agassi equaled a good half bottle. The blonde ambition era Madonna equaled all bets were off. As we got closer to the house, I could see her bouncing around the room to the strains of Cotton Eye Joe, blasting at full volume from the sound system, with what looked like a pineapple frond protruding out from the top of her head and a flash of her trademark red lippy scratched across her mouth. Grandma opened the glossy royal blue front door as we arrived, stroking down her silky indigo blouse and rearranging the long silver chains around her neck, an outfit that gave her the look of a kindly wizard. Hello, darlings. Her voice was both high-pitched and mellifluous, accompanied by the soft undercrackle of her advancing age. Hello, mummy. Mum placed the tart on the ample mahogany sideboard that ran the length of the hall, ending at the old grandfather clock, which had long ceased telling the time, now storing the walking sticks that neither grandparent conceded to use. No, Jan? asked Grandma as she returned my mum's embrace with the swift love that comes with long practice. Later, she responded with a tight smile. Grandma held Romy and me close as Mum bustled the wine into the kitchen, pausing here and there to bump faces with a sister, brother-in-law, or skirt-grabbing niece. A softer version of Mum, loosened with age, Grandma had brown curls that tickled our noses as she kissed our cheeks, her gold peep-toe shoes, the ones she kept for parties, sneaking out from beneath the hem of her skirt. My sister ran ahead into the living room to join the throng, leaving tiny tears face down at the foot of the clock, while Grandma, who had the same aristocratic nose and softly hooded eyes as Mum, gave me an extra squeeze. Her scent of cooking, clean skin, and long-since sprayed Elnet embedding into my clothes. Everything smelled like Grandma's after having been at Grandma's. Happy birthday, darling, she said. You'd better go and get some food before it's all gone. Though all I could really think about was the princess dress, I was hungry, so I jostled into the back living room where the television set was kept. The queue for the buffet had died down a bit, and a platter of freshly cooked chipolatas was glistening seductively on the table. Hello, Teolini, Auntie Rosie pulled me into an embrace from behind, the sweet sourness of her wine breath warming my neck. Happy birthday, beautiful boy. 
Behind her trotted my cousins Daisy and Beatrice. I'm wearing the princess dress. I'm wearing the princess dress. I'm wearing the princess dress, chanted Daisy to no one in particular. Her bright blonde ringlets were caught in the gluey, primary-hued remains of the recently devoured gummy bears surrounding her mouth. Over her white oshkosh bigosh t-shirt, Daisy was indeed wearing the princess dress. I felt my stomach drop. Suddenly, I wasn't hungry anymore. I willed myself not to cry. That used to be my dress, shouted Rosie, spinning across the room, tripping over Daisy's train. No, it didn't, piped both Daisy and Beatrice. The latter cousin, who was the same age yet diametric opposite of the former, all moody pre-Raphaelite curls and alabaster skin, had clearly drawn the short straw in the dressing-up box raid, as she was wearing a stained air stewardess uniform from the 70s. She had a thick pair of pink totes toasties on her feet, and her toes were wedged into a pair of towering Okobo shoes, which my grandpa had picked up on a trip to Japan. It was her dress, Daisy said Auntie Catherine, another of my mother's raven-haired sisters, from across the room dryly. Told you, Rosie slurred, laughing. Can you believe I wore that to the prom? I'm going to wear it to my prom, shouted Daisy. So am I, said Beatrice. Me too. My voice cracked slightly as I realised what I'd said, hoping that no one had heard. As if noticing me for the first time, Catherine pulled me in for a hug as she held her plate of food above me, balancing her glass of wine dexterously on the ball of her hand. I think you'd look gorgeous in that dress, she whispered into my ear as she kissed me on the cheek. I thought Auntie Catherine looked a bit like a model. She was wearing a forest green crushed velvet skirt with a gauzy black blouse and her hip jutted in a way that was rare in my family. Why don't you all go into the other room and play? she suggested, suddenly bored. Yes, that's a very good idea, said Mum, tottering into the living room with her own plate of food piled high, eyeing her sisters to see how much avocado she'd managed to fish out of the salad. Mum was the only other vegetarian in the family, and the competition for healthy fats was fierce. No, Jane, said Catherine. Stop it. I'm vegan. Catherine, you've got all the avocado. I'm vegan! Since when? Happy to avoid the scuffle, Daisy, Beatrice, Romy and I went to find the dressing up box, 